I don't know what they do at your kid's school on the last day, but I remember what happened in my elementary school growing up. They would bring us into the gymnasium and throw a movie up on the big screen. And I remember, I don't know, this had to have been second grade, third grade. They played Old Yeller. I have no idea why they chose a 1957 movie. Okay, this was the 80s. Old Yeller, if you don't know how Old Yeller goes, Old Yeller is a story about a 14-year-old boy and a stray dog that he befriends and they love each other and go on adventures. The dog's name is Old Yeller. Here's how it ends. Old Yeller fights a wolf and saves the family. However, the dog is bit by the wolf during the fight. And Travis has to decide whether or not to shoot the dog or to wait to see if Old Yeller gets rabies or not. And after a moment, Travis decides that he can't risk it. He can't risk his family's safety. So he shoots the dog. Travis is the 14-year-old boy. That's how the movie ends. It's not animated. They just show a 14-year-old shooting his best friend, a dog. And then it's like, class dismissed. See you in September, kiddos. So maybe things have gotten better. Welcome to Parenting as a Joke. Here's a bunch of ads that may have nothing to do with the tone of this show. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It used to be chill, it's all up in smoke, I think it's still fun, parenting's a joke, I was cool, oh yeah, no time to be cool, oh yeah. Hello everybody, welcome to Parenting is a Joke, I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Am I? Who is Ophira Eisenberg other than a vapor with lipstick? Hmm. Anyways, on this show, I talk to creative and funny people about their work, their career, and what it is like to do that with kids in the mix. Yeah, how the fuck are we doing it? And today, I talk to writer Neil Gaiman, creator of Sandman, Good Omens, Coraline, just to name a few, about his career and accepting the name that his granddaughter likes to call him. Despite any attempts to find another name for me i am mama grandpa mama grandpa so she's got her grandpa and her mama grandpa i love to write in bars alone have i mentioned that is my favorite thing to do it is i crave solitude and since i don't have a room of my own at home sometimes after a show okay sometimes before a show judge away. I'll go to a quiet bar and I'll sit at the bar alone and drink a glass of wine while writing in my notebook. And I love it. But let me tell you something. (laughs) As a woman, it doesn't matter how old I get or how I look. I'm actually never left alone. Seriously, if there's any barfly guy at that bar, he will target me. I could be sitting there looking like total shit 
crying and penning a suicide note. And all of a sudden, I'll hear a male voice say, Hey, are you a writer? Because I think noose is spelt with two O's. Don't fucking correct me. You think I'm kidding. You think I'm amping this up for the comedy factor. No, this seriously happens. Recently, I was at a bar, alone, writing with a glass of wine, and this guy beside me said the following. Hey, are you writing in cursive? What the fuck? And I looked at him with my impatient mom face, which I am getting very good at, and said, yeah. And he went, cool. So does that make you write faster? How do I do it, everybody? How do I sit near the stupidest people on the planet? So holding my impatient face and adding incredulous, I said, Yeah, it's faster, because you don't have to lift the pen off the page, which cuts down time, because you don't have to form all the letters. And he said, huh. So, like, are you single? Wow. You know what? It is good to know that if I were single, that's what I'd be getting. That's what's keeping me married, everyone. Listen, I joke, but for most of us in the creative field, all we want to do is work. That's the goal, and to get paid for it, of course. Now, you may have seen it on the news, or perhaps you're experiencing it firsthand, but that is why the writers in the Writers Guild of America are on strike right now. Emily Winter, our game writer, who also writes on Nickelodeon's That Girl Lele, has been picketing every single day in Los Angeles, and I wanted to check in with her from the picket lines in front of the Disney Studios in Burbank. So here's Emily Winter. Emily, how are you doing out there? I am good. I'm standing by a table that has pizza on it, so I cannot complain. (laughs) I mean, it's bad and sad and horrible and terrible, but also right now it's good. I was trying to explain the writer's strike to my seven-year-old child. I didn't do a great job of it, I don't think. You have any uh, uh, tips of how I could explain this to my child? Oh my gosh. Uh, Start with what they know. They know Netflix, right? They know. uh, (laughs) People are not getting paid enough for you to have your own bedroom and make Netflix content. That, you know, those are just maybe bringing together a couple things they care about. Right. You want toys? Exactly. Uh, So, you know, we at the show and our listeners, they, they want to support writers being paid properly. They want to support people having jobs, as in people, humans, not AI taking over everyone's lives and putting them out of work. So what what can we do? What can we do to support? If you live in New York or LA, you could bring some food uh, to a picket site. They always need ice, yeah. especially the hotter it's going to get. They're going to, everybody needs ice all the time for the coolers. Uh, you know what? Writers love Diet Coke. Just generally, um, I mean, we tried to cancel our Netflix subscription, but I needed to finish Jewish matchmaking so bad that we reinstated it. So I can't tell everybody to cancel all their subscriptions. Well, we stand in solidarity with you and the rest of the writers. People might not know this. There's no union for stand-up comics. Right. But we do get drink tickets. <laughs> it's hard because it's like, who, how would you decide who gets in the union? You know? This is true. That union would be 75,000 people big, but very few of them can actually tell a joke. That's the problem with stand-up, man. It's, yeah. <laughs> Emily, can you tell me some of the snappy slogans you've written on your signs? Yes. 
Yes. Okay. Well, today I saw one that I've seen before that says, uh, does AI have my childhood trauma, uh, which I love. That's not one of mine. Um, but yeah, I've got Netflix and chill. Today I wrote one that was like, it was so weird. Um, but it was just like, I hope all of your vacation homes are replaced by bird sanctuaries. Um, that's just how I feel. Um, and all my friends back home think I'm successful, but I haven't actually bought underwear in six or 10 years. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> See, we should even pay these writers for writing funny signs. Thank you so much, Emily, and solidarity to the writers. Speaking of prolific writers, right after the break, I chat with the wonderful Neil Gaiman, and I'll be right back. I'm so excited for today's guest because not only is he one of the creators of modern comics, he is an incredible author. His works include mm, Sandman, American Gods, Coraline, Good Omens, so much more. It is Neil Gaiman. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Neil, you've even got the fancy uh, soundproof in there on your door, which I'm told during the pandemic was sold out. That's because I did it after the pandemic. <laughs> I, I, uh, this is actually a tiny defunct bathroom. <laughs> Over here I have a leopard print blanket that obscures a shower stall. Uh, because the last thing you really want in a little recording space is a shower stall. Unless, of course, you need to go in there suddenly and sing. I mean, there would be something to me very just of the time to do an interview with someone while someone is clearly showering beside them. <laughs> like, just clearly. Like, that's... I, I have said that my apartment is a office and a podcast studio that we just happen to sleep in. I, I don't need pandemics to be the great equalizer, but there are certain things that happen that make you realize how we're all in the same boat. <laughs> Doesn't matter where you live, what uh, kind of money you have access to, this is what's happening. At the end of the day, you're always sort of stuck with what you've got. you stuck with what you got exactly and also you know that was also just a huge thing for well parents it's, it doesn't matter who you were if you had children your life was changing i i had the weirdest parenting pandemic ridiculously stressful and no fun at all and then suddenly it felt illegitimately fine um <laughs> amanda and ash my my four-year-old they they were in New Zealand, and I spent basically the first eight months of the pandemic on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. So I would talk to Ash when I woke up in the morning as mm -hmm. he was going to bed. And when he got up, which was sort of after my dinner time, for about eight months. And then finally conquering every bureaucratic obstacle and every COVID obstacle, and I made it to New Zealand and I was in quarantine for the two weeks of Christmas right. and New Year oh. at the end of 2020. And then on the 4th of January, I came out of quarantine and we hadn't told Ash that he was going to see me just in case something horrible went wrong, in case, oh my you know, and yes. uh, I remember heading down to the beach where Amanda and Ash were going to meet me. And he saw me and Amanda said, it's, it is, it's your dad. And he stared 
And then he ran over and hold me and just wouldn't let me go. And that was magic. And from that point on, I wound up being the parent he was with most of the time in New Zealand, which was wonderful. We were trading parenting, but he'd be with me five nights a week and he'd be with Amanda two nights a week. I had an awful lot of ash to make up and he had an awful lot of, of father time to fill his well with. But at the same time, there was a feeling of guilt because now I was in New Zealand, which for about a year. That's right. Felt uh, totally different world from the rest of the globe. Suddenly it was safe. Yeah. Having literally seen, you know, seen about five people in 2020, (laughs) um, I would go into cafes where there were more than five people, more people than I had seen all year. And they were just interacting and eating and drinking coffee. And I remember having a sort of, I am overwhelmed and broken breakdown, sitting, eating a uh, smashed avocado on toast for breakfast (laughs) in a cafe with Amanda just saying, are you okay? And I'm going, I I don't know. It's all a bit much. You know, I got to say, in a similar vein, in January, of, I guess it was 2021. We had just all, my family had just recovered from COVID. And I got an invitation to do a show in Aruba, where, well, that was another place that was very under control. Plus, all of life was outside. And the show was going to be outside. And I thought, you know what, I'm doing it. And I got on the plane. And then I got to Aruba, where there was life happening. People were hanging out and having drinks on the beach. And I remember going, I'm in a loophole. I found a loophole. So I was in a, in a New Zealand-shaped loophole <laughs> for, for Just you, sheep, and avocado toast. <laughs> so your youngest, Ash, is, am I right in saying that Ash is seven now? You are. He's seven. I understand. And actually, I did not know this from knowing you and talking to you for over the years now, that you have older kids, two older kids. Is that right? I do. Two older kids. Like three. Three older kids. I'm sorry. Three older kids. And at this point, I have three grandchildren. Oh, my goodness. Congratulations. Which is amazing. May I ask, how old are your older kids? My son, Mike, who's my the, the oldest, will be 40 this year. His sister will turn 38. You guys and, were consistent uh, with this. A month or two after that, <laughs> their younger sister will turn, let's see, what are we in, 29. Are any of them creative, by the way? Did any of them pursue also creative careers? They are all creative in their own way, um, which is not my way, which is all incredibly comfortable. Um, <laughs> although I do remember... My daughter Maddie, at the age of about seven or eight, winning a local state Wisconsin young writers competition and uh, saying that she wanted to go where the meeting was of all of the kids who'd won this thing around the state. And she looked at me with incredible pride and she said, you can come too, Dad. She said, there'll be real authors there talking to us. You'll like that. (laughs) (laughs) 
can't get it from your own family. Real you never authors. get it from your own family. So, okay, I've met you two through The Moth, which is a storytelling organization that many people are aware of. You told a story that I remember very clearly about watching your son, your oldest, play hockey. You did not know exactly how to cheer on the sidelines. You made some funny jokes about like, come on, hit that flat thing. Let's do this. <laughs> it's true. You know, my little moth story was kind of about the cycles of disappointment and puzzlement that fathers have with sons because my dad <laughs> was, was the kind of dad who played rugby uh, he boxed, he swam, mm -hmm. uh, he was, you know, six foot three and, you know, just this big, good looking, went into the army, did his national service, boxed in the army kind of person. And then he had this weird bookie son. You know, he, he, he covered up his disappointment well. I didn't realize how disappointed he must have been until... I took him with me to see my son playing hockey and skating all over the ice and doing the stuff. And my dad was in heaven and cheering him on. And I thought, oh, this is that thing that I never gave you. Yeah. That I couldn't give you because I was not that kid. My mother always wanted me to work in computers. She didn't know what it was. It was just the word computers. So she was like, why not a job in computers? Was there something very specific your father or your mother wanted you to pursue or, or said, like, this would be wonderful for you? They were always, to my face, incredibly supportive. Ah. When I was a starving young writer, and I was literally starving, um, my dad, he had a, a, a shop in uh, the town we lived in. And at that point, I had, you know, two very small kids and a wife. And we got to live there as service tenants above the shop and not pay rent, which we couldn't have afforded. Um, but we could, you know, we could cover the bills. And then after about a year of that, he said, right, I'm, I'm selling the place and you have to go and get a real house now. But I think you can just about afford it. And he helped me get a mortgage oh, wow. and stuff like that. Um, and that was also back in the 80s when you could. You could get, get a house. Um, you know, it was, we got a marvelous flat, which is basically the flat that I talk about in Coraline, mm -hmm. uh, divided part of a big old house. And we got it for 47,000 pounds. And I could, I could afford that. I could afford the, you know, I'd save the, five, six thousand pounds or whatever I needed as a down payment on it, um, which is, is kind of ridiculous thinking about it now. Yeah. But years and years later, I did a signing at Barnes and Noble Union Square, uh, probably for Caroline or Nancy Boys, one of, one of those books. And it was a monstrous giant thing and you know, a thousand people came out. I had my head down. I was signing. And my dad was in New York on business. And he came up to just see the signing because it was on. And he ran into my agent, Merrily. And this was, would have been a few years before he died. And Merrily 
said, you know, you must be so proud of him. <laughs> and he said, yes, yes, I am. And she said, but even so, you know, you must have always expected this. <laughs> and he looked at her with bafflement. He said, my son wanted to be a writer. I figured I would be supporting him my entire life. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And what's lovely is I didn't hear that story until after he died and Merrily told me. And I thought, oh, that's, that's sort of something very wonderful about the fact that he didn't actually let on, that he figured that going off and <laughs> Probably writing. Probably not going to work out. <laughs> but also that he was going to support you. I mean, that would, that, that's also very nice. He was, he was, the was. hand would always be there. I'm very grateful that he didn't need to. Yeah. But those that first oh couple of years with, with tiny kids and just struggling to make a living as a freelance writer and the fact that I had somewhere to live was amazing. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine what it was like to also just find time to write in that place where you feel that survival is so, um, you know, it's just it's part of every thought, I'm sure. I was, to all intents and purposes, nocturnal. Mm -hmm. And that worked. I can't do it now. Yeah. I try, and it's a sad, disappointing thing. <laughs> um, it sort of really went away in my mid-30s. But my 20s was nocturnal, and that was how I wrote. And it's how I got, honestly, looking back on it, so much done. I'd get up between 11 and 12. And then spend the afternoon sort of faffing around, getting any reading done, doing things that needed to be done. I was cooking back then as well. So I would go out to the little grocery shop and make the food so that when my wife got home from work and the kids got home, I would feed them. And then we'd bath them put them to bed, I'd read to them, and it would be about nine o'clock, and that was when my work day began. Wow. And I would do a nine to five work day, um, only it really started writing at about nine, and it would finish at four or five in the morning, and nobody bothered me. The yeah. phone didn't ring, everything was quiet, and occasionally you'd get a kid waking up, and if they did, they'd just sit under my desk playing until they got very bored and then they go back to bed. Um, years and years later, it, it sort of, it took more stimulus to keep me awake. So I tried being a late night writer a lot longer than um, probably I should have done mm. just because it was my habit. It was how I wrote. And yet once I'd given up smoking and given up coffee, uh, it was also very easy to find myself uh, lifting my head up from my laptop with 500 pages of the letter M from where I had been fast asleep. <laughs> so I, I would wind up working in front of the TV and we had a satellite downloading four TV stations, you know, five episodes of Jerry Springer or whatever. I would just sit there with five episodes of Jerry Springer playing, which was great because it was never interesting enough to make me stop working <laughs> to watch. 
Just but it was that never noise. dull enough that I felt like I needed to change the channel. <laughs> the shouty, shouty people are shouting at each other again. Oh, good. Go it, shouty, shouty people. I'm going to keep writing. You've mentioned that you write with a fountain pen. Is that still the case? It's still the case. Because for me, the process of writing is always a process of trying to trick yourself into thinking that what you're doing is not important, which then allows you to do it, which yes. then allows you to look at what you've done. And um, I have so many friends who go, oh my gosh, Neil, best thing in life are these Blackwing pencils. Here, Blackwing pencils. Blackwing pencils are the best and they look fancy and they have these little square tips. And Oh my gosh, Blackwing pencils. And I thought, you know, if I'm writing in pencil, that's even less impressive and even less important. So I will try writing in pencil. And I did. And I discovered that if I'm writing in fountain pen, it slows me up just enough to keep me legible. Ah. And if I'm writing in pencil, there was definitely a thing where I'm trying to transcribe what I'd written a few days before. And I'm like, I, what is this? This might as well be chicken scratches. Yep. Entire paragraphs lost to posterity. (laughs) So, you know, while we are talking about writing, obviously there is a writer's strike going on right now. I have seen you on the picket line in support of the WGA. You, I, all of us are not thrilled about AI being used to write. You're in a weird kind of situation. If you read AI-created scripts or stories, they're astonishingly dull. and at their best, they kind of feel like those anodyne stories your grandmother sends your kids uh, with their names in. And feed in the name, it's Madeline Gaiman, and she lives in, you know, Nutley, Sussex, and Right. And then the sun rose over Nutley, Sussex, and Father Christmas came down the chimney and said, Madeline Gaiman, here is your present that you will enjoy in Nutley, Sussex. And it's sort of, that's kind of the feeling you get of this awful vacuousness. I'm not sure it's ever going to do anything that's going to make you ponder the nature of the human condition. Um, You know, there's a thing with good fiction where it gives you what you want in ways that you aren't expecting. And I feel like that, as a writer, is the thing that I'm always going to be going for. Okay, well, you know what? This is perfect, because I'm just going to segue with you and treat you to a game. Uh, It's basically a question-and-answer game about parenting, because what we decided to do is take the most human experience of parenting and the all the kinds of questions that come up for parents about how to parent. And we asked AI. And we also went to experts. So I'm just going to throw out a question and tell you how it was answered. And you are going to tell me if you think that was a real human being that offered that piece of advice, or was it just simply AI? Okay. What a fine game. All right. So like this first one, my child keeps pooping in the tub. What should I do? The answer and advice is make the toilet appealing. Is that the kind of thing a human would say? I think um, that's definitely the kind of thing that a human would say. (laughs) Um, 
it, it also sounds like the kind of thing that experts say. Experts say. The parents then go, yeah, really? Yes, so I will put the little doll's heads all over the toilet <laughs> and we will make a big deal of it. I love that you made a doll the heads toilet. the most creepy thing of all time. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's glue doll heads to the toilet. Uh, AI said that the toilet should be appealing, actually. I mean, the biggest problem with saying, is this human or is this AI? is, of course, AI is just a giant plagiarism machine. What it's actually doing is sweeping the web and looking for places that people have said, my kid is pooping in the bath, what should I do? And it finds two or three places where somebody has said, you know, make the toilet more appealing, and it goes, ah, that is the answer. It's not likely to be creative. It's not likely to say, you know, what you need is a decorated fairy cattle prod and... (laughs) Um, or, or, you know, what you need is to actually put some kind of weird dye in the water that detects poop. So the moment your kid starts pooping, the bathwater turns green. And then you say, no, oh my God, you've done it now. And then you raise a child who is not only terrified to poop in the bath, but ever to poop at all. Which and is maybe what a to normal bathe. parent and maybe would do. To bathe. <laughs> so how about, how can I tell if my child is a jerk? That is the question. And the answer is labeling a child as a jerk is a strong and negative term that may not be helpful or accurate in understanding their behavior or needs. I think any answer that is not your child is not a jerk, don't be an idiot, um, has to have been generated either by a machine or by a human being who thinks like a machine. That's right. Because your child is not a jerk. Yeah, that was completely AI. We asked... What is the worst part of parenting? I cannot wait to hear what the answer was. The answer was sleep deprivation, constant demands and responsibilities, lack of personal time and freedom, emotional and mental challenges, balancing work and family life, parenting guilt, and self-doubt. So that's the complete gamut of what every parent goes through all the time. But that's not the worst part. That's just everything. That's just everything. Describe parenting. Can you sum it up for us? If I had to give a one-star review, what would it sound like? (laughs) Exactly. It would start with the sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation. And then just as the sleep deprivation kind of ends, you realize that now you have lost every other bit of your life. And... It doesn't actually mention having to drive them everywhere. <laughs> it did not mention also what the constant need for snacks. I would just like to Nothing mention about right now that in my childhood, there were no snacks. I'm very, very proud of your parents <laughs> for depriving you of the S word. I have a son who has figured out that if he's just funny enough, he can kind of get what he wants. So, for example, on being told that he was not having dessert he disappeared off to his bedroom and reappeared about five minutes later having put on his best clothes a groucho marks spectacles and nose and mustache and informed us in the deepest voice he could possibly muster and the poshest voice he could possibly muster that he was an ice cream inspector (laughs) And he was, and he was sent to inspect the quality of our local ice cream, and we said that we'd never heard of ice cream inspectors, and he said that it was a thing, and that we we obviously hadn't been paying attention, and did we have any ice cream that he could inspect? And we said, well, we had some vanilla, 
and he said he would be prepared to inspect it. So we, we just sort of, you know, scooped up some vanilla. Oh. And when we handed it to him, the ice cream inspector pulled off his groucho nose and it was ash all the time. What? And he chortled and informed us that we had been fooled and proceeded to eat his ice cream. That is one precocious, wonderful child. And you know what? Deserved that ice cream. <laughs> Figured it out. Well, there you go. That was, by the way, and you were right, that was an AI answer. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Neil, did you always want to have kids? I don't know about want to have kids. I always knew I would have oh. kids. Interesting. And um, I don't really know how to explain that other than I always knew I was going to be a writer. I always knew I'd have kids. I remember being weirded out by the kids that I had <laughs> because they were so different from me. Yeah. But then they also sort of threw my own childhood into a, a sort of glorious perspective that I hadn't had before. It took until Maddie came along and was seven years old and had not alphabetized her bookshelf that I started going, okay, maybe it was just me. <laughs> right. There is such a thing as nurture versus nature. There really is. And I was obviously a, you know, my nature was the nature of the kind of kid who would alphabetize his bookshelf I so love that you, you could so find much. books because that was how they did it in libraries. You know, the thing I worried about most when I was about six or seven years old was authors with two names where you put them. Diana Wynne Jones, is she under the W's or under the J's? Yeah. And it was painful for me. And realizing that my own kids had grown up without this pain or even thinking that books should be alphabetized was very strange for me. You guys aren't me. I think I'd, I'd expected somehow subliminally my kids to be me again. I relate to that so much. I feel like I looked at my son, maybe he was two, and I thought, oh my God, you're a completely different individual. I almost have nothing to do with this. I used to drive um, Amanda mad in the early days of Ash because she was sure that you could just shape them by exposing them to things and doing things and behaving. And you would get be like growing a plant to train up the right trellis or whatever. And I would go, no, you get the one you sent. Yeah. They, they, they turn up and you, your job is to cope with the one that you've been sent. And you go, oh, okay, this is what I've been sent. This is what I'm and working try, with. And try to take that vine and see if you can wrap it around the trellis. Not, sometimes it sticks. Not always. Yeah. And sometimes it, it turns out it's not a vine. It's, you know, it's a little Venus flytrap or whatever. <laughs> and that is what it is. It's a crawler. Yeah. You are both a grandparent and a parent. Yeah. If you could just give me like three words of what it is like to be a grandparent. 
I don't think I can do it in, in three words, but I think I can do it in four, which is, or at least five, which is you can give them back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is so wonderful. You have them and then you can give them back. I love being a grandparent. I, I, one of my biggest sadnesses is in this sort of post-COVID era, um, I have two grandsons on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast, so I do not get to see them as much as I would like and don't get to play and interact with them as much as I'd like. But I have a a granddaughter living 20 minutes from me. Oh, So amazing. she comes over two or three times a week and she gets to interact with her uncle Ash and she's now four and she is, thinks it's very dodgy to have a seven-year-old uncle. Yep. Ash is forever sort of trying to be senior and looking down on her, but <laughs> in a sort of avuncular way. I, I like to think. She's just the funniest little thing, very opinionated. And despite any attempts to find another name for me, I am Mama Grandpa. Mama <laughs> Grandpa. <laughs> And so it's, it's, she's got her grandpa and her mama grandpa. Oh, I love that. And I'm the mama grandpa. You're the mama so grandpa. I'm mama grandpa. And she's very obsessed by stuffed animals, exactly like her mother was. There is a fabulous thing that you get as a grandparent of being able to see your kids in ways that they cannot see because they don't remember. But I remember when Holly was born and she and Mike shared a room and Mike, we got him lots of stuffed toys. We would pick up stuffed toys and accumulate stuffed toys in which apart from a rather terrifying clown, he showed no interest at all. And then the moment that Holly was old enough to crawl, she would crawl across the room, gather together, his stuffed animals take her back to her bed and nurture them. Oh. And um, watching her daughter have the same kind of, ah, uh, yes, she has a world of stuffed dogs primarily and squirrels and things, and she loves them and they are her family. And it's like, oh, yeah, your mum did this. That's amazing. That's amazing. My uh, my son gathered all of his stuffed animals. I said, make them all nice, because that's what I used to do with my stuffed animals. I would like basically create a scene with them on my bed, and that's how they would live for the day. So I said to my son, put them all nice so they're like hugging each other or whatever. And he just put them in a big smush pile, and he said, they're like penguins. They need to huddle to be warm. That's so lovely. <laughs> tell him, tell him my favorite penguin fact. Yes, um, which is that uh, in chilly Antarctic places where there are lots of penguins. Uh, in the morning, when the penguins get up, they all go down to the water's edge. And they don't go into the water. They just stand at the edge of the water on the ice floor or whatever. And then finally, one of them gets pushed in. And uh, they wait to see if that one got eaten <laughs> by a sea lion or something before they all go in. And... Uh, I love the casual cruelty of the penguin tribe. Guess uh, what, Phil? It's your day to jump in. It's your day. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Thank you so much for coming and chatting with me and um, and joining me from the remodeled bathroom. You are so welcome. You you remain my favorite quiz master. Ah, thanks. Thank you so much for listening. You know what? We want to hear from you. I ask every guest if they always wanted to have kids or not. I find it truly fascinating. But what about you? Did you always want to have kids? Let me know. I want to feature you on the show. You can leave a voice memo by going to our website, parentingasajokepod.com, and then you can follow the instructions. Or if you want to email it, just send it to info at prettygoodfriends.com. We could feature it on the show. We could feature it on our Substack. We could feature it on both. By the way, check out our Substack. You can find it on Substack at Parenting is a Joke. And speaking of subscribing, oh my God, the list goes on. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Pass it along to a friend. Thank you so much for your incredible reviews. It means so much. It is so nice to read because that's how I hear from you. I want to hear more. For updates, you can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Parenting is a Joke and on Twitter at Parenting Joke. Hey, if you want to see me live, just check out the dates on my website, OphiraEisenberg.com. Our episode is produced by me and Julie Smith-Clem. Our editor is Nina Porzuki. Our sound designer is Tina Toby Mack. Our game writer is Emily Winter. Our theme song and music is by Adira Amram and The Experience. Thanks to all of the engineers at CityVox. And we will leave you with some parents live on the picket line. My name is Ron Hart. I'm a writer-producer. Currently working on a show called That Girl Lele on Nickelodeon. My oldest is Anina. She's 17. Uh, younger one is Lula. She's 15. Okay. And how do you explain the strike to your kids? Or how did you explain the strike to your kids? <laughs> uh, they don't care. <laughs> they're, te- they're teenagers. Uh, they don't seem to notice that I'm home a lot more. I think they understand it in the abstract, but don't really... Under- they don't... They don't seem to care at all about the particulars. But that's true of my life in general. What do your kids think you do for work? <laughs> they think I eat a lot of snacks and boss people around. And they also think that, that I steal things that they say and put them on television. Is that true? That is true, absolutely, yes. So my name is Sharla Oliver. And I am a TV writer along with my husband, so we're actually a writing team. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, we do kind of like nerdy one-hour stuff, sci-fi, superheroes. And I'm assuming this uh, is your progeny? Yes. Yes? This is Mirabelle. Hi, Mirabelle. <laughs> How old is Mirabelle? She just turned three. We brought her, like, almost every time we've come, so. What did you tell her that you're doing? And we told her we're picketing, and... Like, we're trying to get them to, to pay us more money. And she's like, they pay you the money? And we're like, nope, not yet. <laughs> we, we told her we're, we're TV writers. So sometimes, when she her favorite show is probably Bluey. She'll go sit at the table and, like, type, pretend like she's typing. And she says, I'm writing a TV show you've never seen. And then she'll grab it. You know, I'm ju- doing a gesture on a podcast that doesn't really work. <laughs> and then throw it at the TV. And she's like, there, I did it. I put it on the TV. And if only it were so easy. <laughs> that is so, so cute. Oh, my God.
my gosh. Uh, you're also welcome to chime oh, in. What's, sure. your, what's your name? Uh, my name is James Oliver. And, okay, and you're Miracle's dad. <laughs> yes. Great. Did she ask you anything about the strike? She, she'll ask us if we're like going to the strike that day or not because she likes the treats. Yeah, her biggest concern is if there's going to be treats. That's my biggest yeah. concern too. Yeah. So she had a, a donut and a smoothie already today. Oh my gosh. That's a great day. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.